You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. This is Mark Sharvari. I'm going to be your host today. And we are starting 2021 with two excellent guest contributors, Aidan Mahoney and Eric Bates. What is the molecule that every living organism needs on this planet? Can you guess? If you said water, you are right. Today we are going to talk about water, although it's going to be very two very different topics. Uh, our first guest contributor, Aidan Mahoney, will talk to Helen Chang about New York City and climate change and how coastal cities are threatened. Helen Chang, a coastal resilience specialist at the New York Sea Grant and the Science and Resiliency Institute at Jamaica Bay, is featured in this interview. She speaks about her work communicating science and improving resiliency in the New York City's coastal communities. Additionally, Helen Chang provides her own perspective on the greatest threats to coastal communities in a changing climate and the most promising remedies. Something a little bit closer to us is, of course, our watershed. And our second guest contributor today, Eric Bates, discusses what a modern dairy farm needs to deal with, including runoffs. He interviewed Carl Simek, who is a senior extension associate with ProDairy, which is a part of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell. But before we jump into the longer interviews, I invited Kitty Gifford to talk to you about birds in the winter. So Kitty, this is a brand new segment for Locally Source Science. Uh, what can you tell about it? Well, I thought in these pandemic times, I might give people some ideas about what kind of birds to look for during the winter. It's actually a really hot time to look for birds because you can find some interesting birds showing up during migration. So are you expecting people to go outside in the cold? It, that's right. Bundle up. Excellent. So here's the first episode of... Locally Birding. Welcome to Locally Birding. From the bird feeder to the skies, look out and look up. Today we're going to talk about jeer falcons. Why? Well, one was spotted recently in the Ithaca area, and the birding community is kind of going bonkers. As noted on the popular Ithaca is Crazy Facebook group, there has been some rare bird traffic congestion lately on Game Farm Road in Ithaca as birders stop by to get a look at a juvenile jeer falcon. What is a juvenile jeer falcon doing in the area? Turns out, jeer falcons, the largest falcons in the world, who mostly stay in the far north, occasionally venture a little south of the Canadian border in the winter. 
This incredible predator reigns over barren tundra and desolate coasts in the high Arctic. They are about two feet tall, have a wingspan up to four feet, and can reach up to 130 miles per hour while hunting for prey. While deer falcon populations are reported to be stable, like many birds, they are threatened by climate change. The Arctic, where they spend most of their time, is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. Other fun birds to look out for this time of year? Snowy owl, bald eagles, and check your feeders for common red poles. Tell us what you see. Tweet at FLX Science Radio. For locally sourced science, this is Kitty Gifford. October 26, 2012. The governor of New York has declared a state of emergency, and the president has signed a disaster declaration. Public transportation will be suspended, and major infrastructure will be closed. Hurricane Sandy is bearing down on New York City. The city's 8 million residents live at risk of the impacts of tropical cyclones. In a changing climate, how will these impacts and the general behavior of these systems evolve? The answer to these questions, expert testimony, and more are coming up. My name is Aidan Mahoney, and I study atmospheric science at Cornell University. I lived through Hurricane Sandy at my home in northern Westchester County, a suburb of New York City. The damage in my hometown was unimaginable, and coastal communities endured much worse. The occurrence of Hurricane Sandy contributed to my fascination with the atmosphere and our weather. Tropical cyclones are storms that form over warm ocean water and can produce strong winds, heavy rain, and storm surge flooding. Tropical cyclone is the most general term for tropical depressions, tropical storms, and hurricanes. Projections for global warming of 2 degrees Celsius predict that the amount of tropical cyclones will not change. However, the portion of storms which reach Category 4 and 5 status globally will increase by about 13%. So, we expect to see more tropical cyclones globally reaching higher intensity, but the amount of tropical cyclones to remain the same. The factor most closely associated with tropical cyclone strength is wind. However, flooding exceeded wind as the second highest cause of weather-related deaths in the United States in 2018. Flooding from storm surge in which tropical cyclones push water on shore already presents a dangerous situation to coastal residents. In New York City, 400,000 residents are in the 1% annual chance floodplain. To view current flood zones, visit maps.nyc.gov hurricane. With 11 to 21 inches of sea level rise projected by the year 2050, storm surge flooding will spread further inland. Additionally, rainfall rates are projected to increase by 14 percent 
increasing the likelihood of flooding beyond coastal areas. During Hurricane Sandy, storm surge exceeded 13 feet above sea level. This was high enough to flood 51 square miles of New York City and disrupt critical infrastructure, including the subway system, which floods at a storm surge of 10 and a half feet. Faced with this problem, how can both the government and residents of New York City work to mitigate the impacts? With coastal flooding of paramount concern, efforts should focus on this threat. Since Hurricane Sandy in 2012, which served as a wake-up call for policymakers and coastal residents affected, regulations have been strengthened at all levels of government and engineering initiatives have been examined and undertaken. Perhaps the most major project? A seawall will be built along most of the Staten Island coastline, capable of withstanding coastal flooding of 15.6 feet, two feet higher than that caused by Hurricane Sandy. Projects such as this will save lives and protect property. I spoke with Helen Chang, a coastal resiliency specialist at New York Sea Grant and the Science and Resiliency Institute at Jamaica Bay. She focuses on enhancing coastal resilience and bringing science to the coastal communities affected through outreach. Chang also created the Jamaica Bay podcast series and was featured this past January on locally sourced science. Some of the work I've done with uh, New York Sea Grant, the Science Resilience Institute at Jamaica Bay, really revolve around this idea of bringing uh, different groups together and sharing information, tools, and resources with each other. So I've had programs in the layout of a forum where we have an event down in the community and we bring expertise like emergency managers, weather experts, city agencies even, and talking with communities about a specific coastal topic like flooding, for example. And so we'll invite these um, folks down, the community comes out, and it really is this dialogue that happens between diverse groups and then sharing ideas and perspectives with each other. Another type of program I've been a part of is bringing climate education to the youth from like middle school, high school, implementing a curriculum that was developed by teachers for teachers in terms of climate education as well as climate resiliency. And so that was a really great program that we had that I was a part of. And then one other program that I'm currently working on is a citizen community program where we encourage residents to document and report flooding in their coastal communities. That way we have really ground truth, the data on flood risk and flood risk models, as well as raise awareness of coastal flooding in some of our communities. And so it's this positive feedback loop of information and exchange that uh, project called the Jamaica Bay Flood Watch Project started in 2018, and it's really been going strong since then. It's great that there are these programs that bridge the gap between scientists and the general public, because that's often can be one of the largest divides in society. Absolutely, you hit it on the <laughs> you hit it right uh, right where the the heart is. Is that oftentimes these groups are sort of sitting in isolation. And my role is to really bring these groups together, bridge the gap, and just foster partnerships and collaborations amongst these groups to work on a 
issue that pertains to all these groups, whether you're a community member or a scientist or someone who works in city government, it, it all has an impact. Excellent. And this leads right into my next question. What is your biggest concern for coastal communities in a changing climate and why? So in my opinion, the biggest concern is really apathy, that that we're not having these discussions or that there's sort of this ignoring of the problem. And I think, you know, the with a changing climate, we have seen events that really impact the way that we all live, whether it is the day to day, what should I wear, the fluctuations in temperature, to the more events like strong storms and, and hurricanes even. And so not thinking about them or even just trying to ignore the problem is not it's not productive and i think we need to think about these things together as well as for me to translate the science that's happening to make it usable for communities so that they are feel empowered to take action or at least do something a lot of the communities i work with experience flooding once or even twice a month. October was a very active month for flooding because we had lots of offshore nor'easters that while it didn't directly impact us, it definitely brought a lot of coastal flooding. To ignore that is a really big concern (laughs) for me. Um, And I want people to feel empowered that they can do something. And that's why we have these programs to bring knowledge to people, bring information to people so that they feel empowered to to do something about an issue that can have an impact on the way they live. Now, you touched a little bit about communicating the ongoing science, and I was wondering specifically, how do you communicate the uncertainty about certain projections? That is a very great question. And it's really, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is addressing that uncertainty. We're not trying to make people paranoid, <laughs> but we want people to, to, to think about preparedness. So you've been talking about communicating these resilience efforts to the communities. Do you think there's a time limit on these efforts? I'm wondering, do you think there's a threshold at which it will be too late to become resilient at the level that we need? I think it's really hard to put a time limit on things. Like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of uncertainty with climate science. But I think the most important thing is that we're seeing the impacts of a changing climate now. We've seen more frequent flooding. We've seen more variability in seasons. And so I think we need to really take the time to address those things now, because what we do now is going to impact the way we do things in the future. Often we see that disasters become an impetus for future change. One such disaster that comes straight to my mind is Hurricane Sandy in 2012. Why do you think Hurricane Sandy served as a wake-up call for policymakers and coastal residents? At the time, there wasn't really a firm grasp on how severe this storm was. Personally, having grown up in New York City, I often never thought about a hurricane hitting New York because that's something we heard in the Southeast, in the Gulf Coast. And I think that was a similar sentiment for a lot of other people. 
Many options to increase coastal resiliency are beyond the resources of an individual, with governments and municipalities essentially footing the bill. Are there any actions that property owners can take individually to boost their resilience? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you on that question. I think there are a lot of resources out there for an individual But I do think if a community comes together, so many individuals coming together, there can be things that can be done to boost their resiliency. There's a lot of research that shows that social cohesion brings about community resilience. In terms of actions, I think it's getting to know your neighbor, maybe sharing stories about different experiences with climate, whether it's flooding or heat or or extreme snowfall, etc. That conversation becomes louder and empowers people to take action, whether it's being more vocal about what should happen in their community or being vocal about what things need to get done. Yes, as an individual, it may seem hopeless, but if you have many individuals coming together who have the same similar um, sentiments, I think that can be really powerful. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science, your science news and discovery source for the Finger Lakes region. And you just heard from Aidan Mahoney, who's a student at Cornell University, who interviewed Helen Chang, and they talked about coastal flooding and what's going to happen to New York City. To continue our topic on water, you're going to hear from Eric Bates, who's going to talk to you about local farms and what they do about serious issues such as runoff that can affect our watershed. If you are interested in other stories from local scientists, go to locallysourcedscience.org or download the Locally Sourced Science podcast on your favorite podcast app. You should also follow us on Twitter at FLX Science Radio so you can get all the updates. This is Eric Bates. Joining me this morning is Carl Zimmick. Uh, he agreed uh, to meet with me and answer some questions on nutrient management on dairy farms. Uh, so, Carl, thank you very much for joining me. Let's dive right into it. Uh, my first question is, what are some examples of nutrient runoff that result from non-agricultural areas? So, <clears throat> pretty much any part of the landscape produces runoff. And anytime you get runoff, you get nutrients and sediment moving with that runoff. So whether we're talking about, you know, yards that maybe have been fertilized, areas of pet waste, areas where you have uh, small animals maybe housed, maybe a horse or two, chickens, any, any type of nutrient source that's out on the land is prone to, to runoff, for example. Similarly, uh, crop fields, farm fields that may have been abandoned, they would have been typically fertilized historically. Those areas can produce nutrient-laden runoff, and and so can forests. So whether the forests are uh, second-generation forests that were farmed at one time and have regenerated or, or even virgin forest, all of the areas of the landscape, to the extent that water runs off them, 
there are nutrients leaving those, those locations, nitrogen and phosphorus in various forms. Obviously, that runoff goes into the whole algal bloom conversation. So what are some practices being used now to combat the risks associated with harmful algal blooms? So there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding what exactly is causing the harmful algal blooms that we're seeing here in New York State over the last few years. We do know that the nutrients play a key role in supporting harmful algal blooms. We also know that a number of our lakes are not experiencing increases in, for example, phosphorus levels. So there's a lot of concern and interest in what's going on, why are they happening now. There is some speculation at this point that nitrogen may be playing a role in the harmful algal blooms that we're seeing, which are caused by an organism called uh, microcystis. And the microcystis produces a very, can be a very harmful toxin called microcystin. And the microcystin molecule is very complex and requires nitrogen. And microcystin do not fix their own nitrogen, unlike some of their uh, cyanobacteria peers. They have to get it in the ambient, in their environment. And so there are some lakes that have higher nitrogen levels in them, and they seem to maybe have higher toxin levels. And so there, again, some speculation um, that nitrogen may be playing a role. All of this is to say that in our watersheds, we need to think about how we're managing nutrients, whether we're agricultural sources, whether whether we're simply, you know, forest sources, septic systems, sewage, uh, wastewater treatment plants, and uh, stormwater discharges associated with those. We, We have to look at all the sources of nutrients that are coming into these lakes to try to lower the levels, um, because that's one of the few places we can actually manage uh, is at the manage the life cycles of these organisms is by restricting the nutrient levels going into the lake. So what are some of the practices that we're, we're doing? Nutrient management plans for farms, for example, are an important um, step to managing nutrient losses. More farms are putting in manure storage, uh, less winter spreading, would reduce the risk of muff losses. It's not going to eliminate it, but we do know that particularly January, February, March, and April especially are uh, very prone to, to runoff losses. And so that if we avoid putting manure out during those times of year, we're going to lower risks of flushing some of those nutrients into, into the water supply. So nutrient management plans are really important for doing what we can on the ag side to reduce inputs into the into the waters. One other thing I want to talk about, and I mentioned we're not really sure what's driving the harmful algal blooms that we've been experiencing the last uh, few years, but there's, there's an important factor here. So nutrients and sediment move when there's runoff. So we get runoff when we get lots of rain and snow melt. And One of the challenges is that we have seen in this area, we've seen over the last 120 years, we're getting five more inches of rain average annual over that time period. Another factor is that our storms are more intense. So we're getting bigger storms and we're getting more overall average rainfall. 
which increases runoff. And so even if we did everything the same, we're getting more uh, runoff uh, going into the lakes as a result of the increased rainfall. So we're going to have to manage that as, you know, across agriculture, again, across uh, wastewater treatment plants and so forth, because that's, a, that's an important factor. What are some misconceptions you've seen about farms today? I continue to see a lot of um, skepticism and concern about large farms, especially the larger livestock farms. And I think some of that is, is people are misinformed. Um, there's a lot of information on the Internet that pertains to livestock operations in other parts of the country that people automatically assign to our livestock operations here, which are simply untrue. For example, there are livestock systems in other parts of the country where there's little or no land associated with the animal operation. And in that case, um, the manure getting repeatedly spread on nearby fields can be a real problem for recycling the manure nutrients. That doesn't mean that every bit is perfectly managed every day, but, you know, we have an opportunity to balance. A lot of the documents posted on the Nutrient Management Spear website are, I I really enjoyed reading them because they're pretty concise and straight to the point. Um, Is that, was that intentional? And if so, why? Yeah, no, it's absolutely intentional. And and thank you. We take that as a a compliment that that we've accomplished that fairly routinely. Dr. Ketterings and I have worked together for about 20 years now, and we are very, very intentional about providing documents that that are clear and concise, that get the message across, and we try to address practical issues as well as important research questions. So the goal here of the Nutrient Management SPEAR program and my my partnership with it through ProDairy is to provide um, information to farmers and advisors that can actually be implemented in the field and on farms with the goal of helping farms um, use nutrients more efficiently so that there's an economic proposition, positive economic proposition for the farms and a positive uh, environmental proposition for the surrounding environment. You just spoke about your role with farms. So what is the most effective thing you've seen farms themselves do to communicate what they're doing to the public, they're being good stewards to the land, what things have you seen that have worked? My comment on that question is it's absolutely critical that every farmer talks to people who are not from farms about what they do. People want to hear from farmers. They don't want to hear from you know, me from Pro Dairy or, you know, Northeast Dairy Producers Association or Farm Bureau. Or they're willing to hear from them, but they want to hear the farmer say it herself. So the message to farmers is you don't all have to do big, you know, open house events. If it's talking to people at church or talking to people at, you know, at a town board meeting or anytime you get a chance to talk to somebody who's not from a farm about what you do, people are hungry for it. 
we need everybody communicating because I, I would say that for a lot of us, farmers are people who want to go out and work hard and do work hard. And sometimes we, we think that working hard is a message in itself. And, um, and the problem with that is the neighbors don't necessarily see that. And we need words and conversations, too, to, to reach out. So that's, that's my biggest message back to farmers is just like uh, everybody has a role in, in uh, reducing nutrients in a watershed, everybody has a role in communicating what farmers do. And I urge everybody to pick you know, one or two ways to do that. Well, thank you, Carl, very much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to help me with this. Thank you. Thanks for your interest, Eric. And that concludes the first locally sourced science episode of the year 2021. My name is Mark Sharvari. I'm the producer of today's show. I would like to thank Eric Bates and Adam Mahoney, who were guest contributors to today's show. And I would also like to thank Kitty Gifford for bringing us fun bird news of the region. The next show coming out in two weeks. In the meantime, go to locallysourcedscience.org to learn more about local scientific discoveries and follow us on Twitter at FLX Science Radio. Science out! <laughs>